Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where we are going to be continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series here. Let's begin with the reading of our text together. Jesus speaking here says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know, the city of Vancouver that we live in here, there are two bridges that actually connect our church here out on the North Shore to the rest of the Lower Mainland. And those two bridges are the Lionsgate Bridge out by Stanley Park and the Ironworkers Bridge, or these two bridges otherwise known as the First and the Second Narrows Bridge. Now, the word narrows is a word that refers to a narrow strait or river or sort of current of water flowing somewhere. And therefore, because it's a narrow narrow place, right, it's an ideal place usually to build a bridge over so that you can get from one place to the other across the body of water. Now, if you were to look at the ships that are out there in the Pacific Ocean, they are vulnerable to storms and other surges out there at sea. But a ship that sails into Vancouver Harbor by passing through the first narrows right underneath the Lionsgate Bridge can reach the relatively safety of the harbor there. And even more so as a ship continues to sail down through the inlet past the second narrows all the way over to uh, Port Moody. Yeah. So that's the reason why there was a, a port there, safety. Now, if you think about it, if you were out to sea in Vancouver and We praise the Lord that we don't have many things like hurricanes and so on. But if we were to have hurricanes or major storms, the sea is not a safe place to be. It's not a place where you want to be exposed to the elements with your ship out there in the event that there is something terrible going on. And what you would do if you were any wise captain is you would take your ship and you would pilot it through the first narrows and get to the safety of the harbor. And the point is, there is no other way into Vancouver's harbor except to pass through that narrow way. Nowhere else is actually safe. You must go through it. Now, the point I want to make here is that I think that in this text is that Jesus' point is actually very similar to our city. The only way, he points out here, to survive the storm of God's wrath, the winds and the rains that are going to come and beat down on you one day, is to actually pass through the narrow way. Now, up until now, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been speaking about the incredible difference that characterized his followers who belong to his kingdom as opposed to everybody else in this world, right? So the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has talked about how his followers are characterized by love for their enemies. They do not repay evil with evil, but they repay evil with good instead, They aren't just to be people who don't get angry on the, uh, don't commit murder, but they are not to be angry even on the inside and harbor resentment. They're not to pray, to give and fast in order to get the admiration or the pleasure from other people, but they are to pray, fast and give in order to please the Lord. There's so many different things that Jesus speaks about to point out that his followers are radically different in terms of their attitude, their Godward orientation in all things. And here, like any good preacher, Jesus, after explaining all of these principles throughout his entire sermon, turns to application. And he does it with four things that he hammers home in the way that he 
brings home this, this idea that his li- listeners need to make a decision. Like right here in their text, he says, are you on the broad or are you on the narrow way? Consider yourself. And then he turns to the idea of a tree and its fruits. What are you? Good and bad fruit. You can actually tell. He goes on further after us to say, are you, you think that you know the Lord and you say that you profess his name. The question though is, of course, is, is the relationship two way? Does the Lord actually know you? And finally, at the end, he says, you got to make a choice. Are you the man who's building his house on sand that's going to fall? Or are you an individual who's building his house on a solid rock? That is my teaching. And will you survive the storm? See, Jesus is interested in his people applying his teaching. Jesus never tells you things in the Gospels just so that you can go away with information and say, oh, that was wonderful. Great teaching by Jesus. I feel so uplifted today. No, he's not that sort of teacher. Jesus is not primarily interested in simply giving you information. He is interested that his teaching results in transformation in your life. See, Christians aren't just people who have heard a set of truths and they kind of agree with them. They're people actually who have heard the truth about God and they internalize it. It transforms them from the inside out and they actually become born again through the living word. They are different qualitatively forever and fundamentally because of their encounter with Jesus and his truth. So what I'd like to do today is we talk about this passage, is I'd like to point out two things. I'd like to point out the first and the second narrows, or the two narrows I think that followers of Jesus need to pass through as they consider what it is to follow and to walk the narrow way that Jesus calls all of his people to go through. All right? Two things. The first one that I'd like us to consider is the narrow of exclusivity. And everyone needs to deal with this. You notice that when Jesus begins his teaching here, he begins with a command. Verse 13 starts with a command that says to enter. In other words, you can't have an accidental Christian. Nobody accidentally becomes a Christian. See, you actually have to decide to follow Jesus, to make a conscious decision to enter to make a choice to follow him. You must pass through the narrow gate. And only those who pass through, that is, go through the turnstile, are eligible actually to come into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus in his later statements is going to clarify what exactly he means by this. And you're going to see also that the narrow way involves building your entire life on his teaching. That's a part of it. And if you don't, he points out that you're just like a person who's built his house on shifting sand and it's going to collapse on you and kill you eternally one day. Now, there is no way to be in a relationship with God unless you are in an exclusive master discipleship relationship with Jesus and follow his teaching. That much is clear from Jesus' preaching. Now, I know that some people in our culture will say things like, well, you know, my grandmother was like the sweetest lady that you've ever known. I mean, she never went to church. She would never have classified herself as a Christian. But we all know that deep down inside our heart, she was as good as anyone who was out there. I'm certain that if she were to show up at heaven's gates, that if anybody would make it through right now, she would have made it into heaven. Don't you think? Now, this kind of thinking is common. 
But the problem with this is despite the fact that it tickles our cultural sensibilities and we think, oh, yes, of course, sweet old lady as well should be able to go to heaven. The problem with this is that it goes directly contra to the Bible's teaching about the, first of all, universality of sin. That is, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, including your grandmother, as good as she is, and don't meet his standards, are not perfect in his eyes, all have sin, and therefore earn the wrath and the judgment of God. Not a single person will be able to stand before the king of all the earth and say, I'm perfectly fine, take me in. Now, the Bible is very clear that we have a sin problem, and unless that is dealt with, all of us stand condemned. Now, the other thing also in the Bible is that there is a solution to this, but the solution is not anything that we can do. The solution comes through what Jesus actually has done. There is no other way to be in a proper relationship to have these sins made right unless it comes through Jesus Christ himself, through his blood on the cross that was shed for sinners. Jesus is explicit about this. In fact, when he talks in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says these famous words. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus speaking as well in John 3, verse 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God actually remains on him. You know, later the Apostle Peter, who's preaching as the church is birthed and Jesus has already been resurrected and gone up and ascended into heaven, preaches to an entire crowd of people about the exclusivity of belief in Jesus, saying these words in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name other than the name of Jesus. It's exclusive. So there is no hope for anyone in this world except through the name of Jesus Christ. And the travel metaphors that are used here in this Sermon on the Mount, like a gate, a road, the narrowness of it, a way to destruction, and then another way that leads to life, is all meant to teach us about the very real concepts of heaven and hell and how distinct they are from one another. See, there is God's way that leads to life, and then there is not God's way, which leads to not life or to death and destruction. And this exclusive language that Jesus is using here, these metaphors, is not just his own, but it actually finds its precedent in the Old Testament. Jesus knew his Bible, and he knew that the people he was speaking to as well understood this imagery. For example, if you look at Deuteronomy verse 30, 30 verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 19, it says this, Moses speaking, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Psalm 1, 6, wisdom literature says this, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Jeremiah 21, verse 8. Jeremiah is speaking on the very same idea. God tells him to say this. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. So you see that? It's two ways. One way or the other way. 
And this is so different, this language from the modern world that likes to say to people, no, 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 there's a hundred ways to heaven. See, in contrast to that, the true God says, no, it's always been like this. There is only my way or is the highway that leads to death. It's a serious thing. Now, let me talk about something else. The idea that Jesus is the only way to God is really repulsive, actually, in our culture. If you were to speak this or to preach this, you are find that there are individuals who will look at you and say, you're narrow-minded, you are bigoted, you're archaic, you're out of touch with reality. Are you crazy? How can you be so arrogant as to say something like this in this day and age? Don't you think it's presumptuous to say that your Jesus is the only way when there are so many religions out there? Can so many other people be that wrong? What gives you the right to say that your way is the only way? And I know in Vancouver, people love to give this analogy, and I'm sure many of you have heard this before, right? They like to say that, well, you know what the way I think religion is? Religions of the world are really like blind men trying to feel an elephant, right? The story goes that there's a king, right? He asks a bunch of blind men to... To, to feel an elephant, to show the king's wisdom. And he says, what's the elephant like? And then one blind man goes up and he feels the elephant's leg and he says, hmm, the elephant is like a, like a pillar or like, a, like some sort of, sort of tree. Another blind man stumbling over grabs the elephant's tail and he says, oh, the, the elephant is really like a piece of rope, you know. And then another man comes up to the elephant and he says, well, no, he feels the elephant's trunk. He says, it's kind of like a, a, thick, a thick branch, you know, but soft, like from a rubber tree or something like that. And just different feeling different parts of the elephant. They're all coming to these strange and different conclusions of what the elephant is like. And then the king, in his wisdom, says to them, you're all technically right with this because you're all feeling different parts of the elephant and you all just have different perspectives on the whole thing. But the truth of the matter is the whole thing is actually an elephant and only you, each person has sort of a little bit of the truth, but nobody has the complete truth. And that's what the religions of the world are like. They're all just different takes of the, the big thing, which is actually the truth. And they're all just feeling according to their own set of knowledge. And it's argued that the world's major religions, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, you know, all these things are just, just, just different, different aspects, different views, incomplete views of the truth. Now, perhaps you've heard this before and perhaps you've dealt with it. But do you know what the problem is with this analogy? The problem with this analogy is that it is saying that someone, or you, if you're making this analogy, has the ability to actually see the whole elephant. In other words, if you're saying that all the religions of the world are only feeling a little bit of the truth, it presumes that from your vantage point in life or because of your learning or wherever you are or because of the truth that you have gained somehow or another, that you are actually able to objectively look at all of these religions, all of their teaching and stuff, and realize that all of them actually only grasp a part of the truth and that you see more clearly and better than all of them in order to make this kind of absolute judgment over them. And if you say that no religion then can absolutely make this rightful truth claim about the truth, and that no vantage point in this world sees, then the question is, why is your vantage point any different? Why is it that your religion, 
Your view is the only true one. In fact, why should I believe you if you're so confident that everybody else in the world does not see clearly except you? See, the truth of the matter is, although this claim actually sounds humble on the surface, it's actually quite arrogant if you think about it. See, when a Christian says something like, Jesus is the way, this is not a personal claim that I'm making from my vantage point. As if it's my authority that allows me to say that Jesus is the way and I've surveyed everything else and I can conclude that is true. No, the reason actually that I subscribe to it or that I think it's, it, it's true is because Jesus actually claimed to be God. It comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. The real question is, in Jesus' claim to be God, a claim that no founder of any other religion in the world dared to make, not Muhammad, not anybody else. The question becomes then, is Jesus actually God? And if he really is God, then he would have the authority to say such a thing. And the question for us then is, do we accept that claim then, if he really is God? See, everything hangs here on the fact of whether or not Jesus is God. See, unless you know for certain that Jesus is not God, there's no possible way it can be true, then to dismiss him as wrong, just because it, it offends your North American sensibilities, this idea that all religions have to ha are just sort of looking at one aspect of the truth, you can't do that. It's not bigoted to do so. See, narrow does not mean bigoted. An exclusive truth claim does not mean that you're a narrow-minded person. Just because you say that 1 plus 1 equals 2 does not make you, oh, that's, that's narrow-minded. How, how can you say something like that? If your doctor were to come up to you and say, well, there's some really bad news from the last scan. Uh, you either have cancer in your spleen or you have cancer in your lungs. It's not fully clear yet, but that's what the test shows. You don't go to your doctor and say, how can that possibly be true? Doctor, you're so narrow-minded to give only two options like that. No, you don't. You don't say that. You don't dismiss your doctor just because he's made an exclusive statement. You may have reason to believe that he's factually wrong, but he's not bigoted for speaking exclusively or narrowly giving you only two options. The same thing is true for Christianity. Just because Jesus makes exclusive truth claims doesn't mean that he's narrow-minded or bigoted, right? The question of not is whether he's true. That's the real question. Is he actually God, and is what he says true? Now, the whole idea, this idea that religions are sort of equally valid and that there are multiple ways to God, is called religious pluralism. It's a type of thinking that we have in our day. And despite how prevalent it is today, it really has only taken root in our Western society in the last 200 years or so. Okay, uh, for example, if you look at like the American Constitution, uh, that advocated for the freedom of religion for all peoples, you will realize that in reading that, people at that time were not writing that all religions were equally valid. There's a major difference between those two statements. Okay, So here's, here's the problem with religious pluralism. As I've just shown you, it's not just arrogant, actually, to assert that all religions are the same. It's actually also ignorant to do that. You know, back when I lived as a student at UBC in the dorms, I loved speaking to people, non-Christians especially, about the gospel and the truth claims of Christianity and about Jesus. And I remember there was one day I was standing, I think, at a booth, and there was a bunch of students there, and one of them got into a debate with me uh, over this very topic 
arguing rather passionately, said that the worship of God, you know, in all the major religions really is just the same. It's just a matter of how you cut it up and you look at it. And so then God is actually just the same God. We just have different ways of getting to him. I remember talking to him and I said to him, okay, can you, can you just do me this? Can you please describe your mother for me? And he did, you know, he's like, he said, my mom is like, whatever, five foot four, whatever. She's Indian. Uh, she's got dark hair. And to which I replied and I said, oh, okay, well, I think my mom, who is five foot two, whatever, and has, you know, dark eyes, whatever, she's Asian, she's Chinese as well, and uh, she clearly speaks, you know, a Chinese dialect as well. Based on your description of your Indian mom and also of my Chinese mom, I come to the conclusion that the two are one and the same person. Your mom is my mom, actually. Where have you been all my life? I remember looking at me, just wondering, you know, like, uh, this guy have a few light bulbs that are burnt out in his brain. You know, is he joking? Like, what is he trying to say? Like, seems so serious. And so I'd explain to him, I said, this is the problem with that. The problem with saying all that religions of the world are the same is that it doesn't help you deal with the fact that religions of the world all make exclusive truth claims that are just mutually incompatible with one another. Take for, example, Jesus's, uh, take, for example, the Scripture's teaching in 1 John 2.23 that says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In other words, if you think about what this verse is saying, it's saying that if you want to have God as your Father, there's only one way. It's if you go around telling everybody that you believe in His Son and that Jesus really is the Son of God. Now, this is not a truth claim that is made in Buddhism, in Islam, in Judaism, you name it. Well, only Christians speak this way and affirm this particular truth. Unless everybody is teaching this about Jesus as well, according to this scripture as well, you have no relationship with the Father. You may think that you know God, but you actually don't know Him. You have to know Jesus. Now, that doesn't square with the teaching of other religions. Other religions are as different from each other as our two moms are from each other. Your mother is clearly not my mother. My mom is clearly not your mom. And the only way that you would make that mistake is if you didn't know enough about our moms to be able to say something with certainty that your mom is not my mom. See, the same is true when it comes to religion. Most people in the world think that Religions are just superficially different, but at the core, they're all the same. They're all about loving people and doing good things and so on. The truth of the matter is, if you look closely, like you look at my mother and his mother, and apart from the fact that they're women, that's all the similarity that there is there. They're not interchangeable, okay? They maybe talk about faith, but they're completely different from each other. I would say that if you look and examine the truth claims of religions on the world, you will discover that religions are actually superficially the same, but they are fundamentally different. On the surface, they look similar, but underneath the nuts and bolts of them, they're completely different and they're incompatible with each other. And you would know that if you just dug into them a bit. See, ignorance is not bliss. It's actually wrong. There's a third problem, I would say, with religious uh, pluralism, and that's this. It's that it's deceptive as well. Now, some of you might be thinking, it says, okay, well, I, I might buy some of your logic, you know, with regards to this, but let's say, let's say that 
Yeah, okay, not all of them are equally valid. But the question is, how do you know that yours is the right one? And how could so many other people, since you're in the minority here, be wrong? I mean, when you're in the minority group, shouldn't you think a bit about why you're in the minority group? Like, can all the rest of the people in Canada and the rest of the world really be wrong? And here's the truth. If you hold the majority opinion of your culture, and that is what you base the ethic of your life on, in the future, if you could live long enough, you would be embarrassed by some of the things that you would currently hold to today. Okay? In fact, if you fully agree with your culture and everything that the culture says today, you will necessarily be embarrassed, actually, because history has shown that to be true over and over again. You'll be vilified, actually, by a generation that comes after you. Yeah, I mean, just look in our own province, for example. Just over about 100 years ago, in BC, people supported a head tax against immigrants simply because they were Chinese. In fact, some of you might not know this, but there was actually a group called the Asiatic Exclusion League that started in the, sa- in the States and actually formed a chapter here in Vancouver. And they organized attacks on Asians under the slogan, White Canada Forever. You think about something like that. It's just a hundred years ago as well. Chances are, if you were in the majority of white Canadians, right, other part of the side, you probably would have subscribed to this. You probably, even if you didn't fully agree, you wouldn't have said anything because too many people are upset. They were rioting and they were fighting. To, to hold a belief like that today, it's not just embarrassing, but it could cost you your job and your very livelihood. You'll be ostracized in society. What will happen to you in the next 100 years if human history looks back on our generation and judges us for our crimes. See, just because you hold the majority opinion doesn't mean that it will stand even the test of time in your own culture, 30 years, 50 years, or 100 years from today. How much less will your thinking, if it's just based on the culture you live in today, stand the test of time, especially when it comes to the rule of God? See, every generation will regret something. And here's the deal. If you're married to the spirit of the age, you will become a widower in the next. That's the truth of it. If your ethic is defined by what the majority of people think around you, and that's all that your standards and your principles are based on, you will not pass the test of God. Jesus calls his followers to live according to his timeless, transcendental, and his perfect principles that do not change for all time. See, the narrow way, as we talk about it, is exclusive compared to our culture's view. But Jesus points out that it's right. In fact, he points out that though it has a narrow start and a narrow walk, guess what? The end is very, very wide in the kingdom of God. Great freedom, joy, everlasting peace. In contrast, he says the road of this world is actually very, very wide to begin with. But guess what? You know what its end is? Jesus says, I stand from the vantage point of being God. And I'm telling you that I can see the end of this road and the end of it is destruction. It's suffocating, it's constricting, and it's absolutely eternally faithful. You do not want to go there. Just because something starts off as hard does not mean it's bad. And the good thing, interesting thing is, but we know this in every, virtually every aspect of life. We know that hard things, just because they look narrow or constricting at the beginning, they aren't necessarily bad. 
I mean, those of you who are good at saving money and are frugal right now will one day perhaps enjoy the benefits of home ownership, right? And having a vehicle, not living in credit card debt. Unlike those who are racking up bills for things that they can't pay for and will live actually in constriction afterwards as creditors and Visa comes knocking on your door afterwards to get their money back. You know, they're kids, right? They who give up, give up playing video games every single day in order to practice their musical instruments or to work hard on their school, and they suffer like this. Why? In order to enjoy the freedom one day of being able to get up in front of a crowd and in just 30 seconds run your hands across the keys or put your hand by just swinging, running your fingers across like a fretboard and being able to make beautiful music freely so that people can enjoy. See, freedom like that only comes through discipline, going through a hard and a difficult beginning in order to get the freedom that's at the end. And the strange part is that we know this in life, whether it's in finances, working with your family, going through school, learning a musical instrument. But for some reason, when it comes to talking about eternal life, we think, oh, no, like a narrow way of living, difficult life and stuff. There's no way it can possibly end well. I'm like, why? Everything else in life works this way. And God tells us this way. Don't discount it just because it's hard at the beginning or it seems narrow and exclusive. That's the first narrow, the narrow of exclusivity. And I encourage you, those of you who are listening to this, and maybe you haven't come to grips with who Jesus actually is, don't stumble over this. Don't drown in this narrows. Exclusive does not mean bad. It's something that Jesus calls us to consider and calls us to pass through. Now, there is a second narrow that I want to talk about this, and it's number two. And I call this the narrow of hypocrisy. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at here. When Jesus addresses this, speaks of in this passage, and people use it or preach it, and they often talk about it, they often equate the narrow way, usually to a certain set of outward Christian behaviors in a particular cultural context at a given time. Now, these things can include things like don't swear, don't smoke, don't drink, don't get angry, don't do drugs, don't sleep around, don't work on Sundays, don't marry outside of your race, don't let their children choose their spouse, don't spend money on foreign missions, and there's so many things, okay? Now, let me be clear. A number of the things that I mentioned in that list are explicitly sin and condemned in the scriptures. Some of those things in there aren't explicitly sin, but to engage in them is highly dangerous and will lead you actually to a road of sin. Other things in that list you shake your head at and you wonder, like, really, why would anyone say that? And let me just tell you, yes, those, some of those things in there, as weird as they may sound, were considered wrong or sins by Christians in other generations at other places or in other time, okay? But in honesty, I'll say, yes, their biblical support for some of these things is questionable. Despite the seriousness of a number of these outward things, I do not think that this is what Jesus is primarily referring to when he's calling his people here in this particular text to live on the narrow way. The reason I say that is because you need to look at the entire context of the Sermon of the Mount. Now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 is instructive for us. Prior to this point, like Jesus has been emphasizing over and over and over again that there's a massive difference between the way that the disciples in his kingdom are going to live and the way that people of this world are going to live. But also, there's something deeper than that. And in the text, he says this. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you stop and you think about it, this statement is absolutely stunning. Especially if you think about who the Pharisees were. If anyone kept the Ten Commandments and was fastidious about keeping the law of God, it was the Pharisees. Do you fast and pray as a believer? The Pharisees were serious, and many of them fasted two times a week. When they bought their groceries or they dug up herbs out of their garden, they were deeply conscious that 10% of that, and they marked it off, they portioned it out, needed to go to God. They weren't thieves like the tax collectors. They were not illicit people. They did not commit adultery on their wives. They did not lie or testify falsely against their neighbors. Many of them, if you were to ask them, have you kept the law of God? And they would say, absolutely, unlike those tax collectors, prostitutes, and other people, like, my life is squeaky clean. They were the good guys, you have to remember, in Jesus' day. They were the heroes. They were the politicians who had a squeaky clean record, unlike many others today in leadership. They were heroes to the people. Do you understand? It was a bombshell for Jesus to come in and say, you see all these model citizens, these guys who are currently in your leadership? Guess what? These conservatives and fundamentalists of your day, unless your righteousness exceeds that of them, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And they're flabbergasted by that. How can you say that, Jesus? Why would Jesus say something like that? Why would he say, unless your righteousness goes beyond what these people's righteousness is, that you're never getting into heaven? You remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said this. He said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? I preached a sermon on this text, right? And I pointed out this. I pointed out that Jesus' point is that your outward actions are only a part of God's will for your life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confirms and affirms things like don't commit adultery, don't, don't lust, I mean, sorry, don't commit adultery, don't murder, and so on. But he also takes it up a step by saying, here's the heart of the law, guys. You need to also not just be, not, not just don't murder, but don't be even angry and harbor resentment in your heart. It's not just about committing adultery. It's about lusting action in your heart. Jesus goes right for the heart and says, it's not just about what you do on the outside. He says, it's even about the motivations inside of your heart for why you do them. And if those are dirty and impure, it's offensive in the sight of God. See, Jesus affirms, do righteous things. Don't live in sin. But he says, also do it for the right motives. Don't just give, pray, and fast so that other people can see you doing this, but pray, give, and fast in order to please God, not to please other people. See, and when Jesus is saying, you must be perfect, or teleos, which means complete, what he is saying is, I want you to be a complete person, that is a person whose inward heart attitude matches your outward action. Do not be an individual in which these two things are not in congruence with one another. If you are like that, you commit the sin of the Pharisees and you live in hypocrisy. He's not asking for sinless perfection here, but he's asking or saying that you can achieve it on earth. What he's saying here is that your inner heart motivations need to match what you're doing on the outside. That's what God actually expects also of you. So when Jesus argues that, he's arguing that he wants people 
his followers to be characterized by a sincerity, a congruency, a lack of hypocrisy, something that the Pharisees did not have. My followers, he said, don't just do good things on the outside, but they do it on the inside as well. See, in Matthew 19, Jesus shows how this works, actually, as he meets with a certain young man, or this rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler basically tells him, look, I've kept the whole law, Jesus. And Jesus, looking at him, looks straight into his heart, knows exactly there's something wrong with him, and says, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the young man leaves absolutely crestfallen because he can't do it. And Jesus looks at him. He's sad, and he realizes, man, it's so difficult for people with money or have basically have other things in their heart, even though they keep the whole law to actually be in the kingdom of God. You may be perfect on the outside in the way that you look, but your heart can actually be far from the kingdom of God. I doubt that most of us would have had the wisdom to say that to him. But here's the deal. God reads the heart, and he knows exactly what's in there. See, Jesus' point is that if you're not, Jesus' point is you're not my follower if only your outsides are clean and your insides are dirty. Righteousness isn't just about what you see, but it's also about what's inside of you as well. You know, the songwriter Andrew Peterson wrote these lyrics in a song. He said, Tonight in the line of the merchandise store, while they were packing up my bags, I saw the pictures of the prophets of the picket signs screaming, God hates fags. And it feels like the church isn't anything more than the second coming of the Pharisees, scrubbing each other till their tombs are white. They chisel epitaphs of piety. See, the point of this is, if you claim to love God and yet your life does not show it in the way that you act, you're a hypocrite. And if you become a whole church that pickets and does things, or you're a whole church that is concerned only about outward things while not looking inwards and recognizing that there's sin actually inside the heart and that what you're doing is, that you're, and, and that the motivations of the heart are also equally condemnable in God's sight, you actually don't grasp the gospel. You're missing something at the heart. In fact, you become a hypocrite and as the song says, if you continue to do this, and this is the way that you live, only be con concerned with the outward while failing to recognize the things that are on the inside as well, you and your group, your tribe, your church, your denomination, or whatever you are, will be nothing more than the second coming of the Pharisees. And you will kill people. You won't be a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, I am not saying that it is only the heart that matters, and that outward actions are unimportant. We're never permitted, actually, to do things that are sin, and even in the things that we are free to do, according to the Scriptures, many times the Scriptures command us to restrict our freedoms so as not to lead others even into sin. The standards are very high. But the main point here is that what it means to walk the narrow way in the context of of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is to sail past the narrow of hypocrisy. That is dealing with only outward behavior and failing to address the sins of the heart. To walk on the narrow path means that you are to be an individual who doesn't just commit, doesn't just fight hard not to commit outward sin, but is also fighting hard to kill sin even in your own soul, the part where people can't see it. 
It's not just about not committing adultery. It's also about not lusting in your own heart as well. It's not about whether or not you've murdered someone, but it's whether or not you harbor anger and resentment in your heart, even while you smile at them in church or in your workplace as well, and tell everyone that all things are good when deep down inside they're not. You know, I remember a professor of mine preaching on this very passage when I was in seminary. And he told a story, actually, about how he had done a wonderful Bible study, he said, with middle school boys, and he thought it was great. And then he found out the next day that it wasn't so great, not from the boys, actually, but uh, when a whole bunch of the Christian soccer moms also got together, and he could hear them murmuring and rumors being spread about him, and they were so angry with him. And he was so hurt by this because they gossiped about him, they slandered him, they said nasty things about his biblical knowledge and so on. And he, was, he was indignant. I mean, he thought, he said, I'm a professor. I teach at one of the flagship schools here. If anyone knows my Bible, it's me. I know it better than all of them. They don't even know what, what, what I said fully in that class. And they're hearing transmission through these kids as well. They're damaging my reputation. And he said he was really upset. And he actually wanted to really write this really harsh email and just tell them all these things. And his wife read it over and she said, Hunt, don't, don't send that. And he listened to the voice of his wife in this case. He said, okay, I'm not going to send that about it, prayed, wrote a different email instead, conciliatory, apologized for the parts so that could be his fault, and, uh, and uh, dealt with it in a different way. It was good. But he said that in the days to come afterwards, though he had written that, he still struggled, and he battled with anger and resentment in his own heart. It's not easy to be misjudged by other people especially when, when you have really good reason to believe that they're wrong. I, read, I remember listening to him speak that. I'm like, I know exactly what that's like. And at the time, I just served in youth ministry, and I said, I, I know, I've served in youth ministry in the past. And when you start dealing with people's kids, especially with parents, they can get really defensive and very angry at you. And they're not willing to listen. When you talk to them sometimes about the things that their kids have done, They'll talk to everyone but you about the problems that they're currently experiencing. So I, I, I deeply felt for him as I just listened to this thing. And I, and I really respected him as a strong teacher of God's word. And it also, I also respected it because I found that even in my own soul, that really concerned me as well. You know, as an individual, as a Christian, I have to ask myself the question, do I say that I've forgiven or I've dealt with things on the outside when I really haven't on the inside? Do I say things because that's what is expected of me? And you know in a church, for example, you're supposed to be gracious. You're supposed to be well-spoken like that. You're not supposed to fly off the handle, especially because you're the pastor of the church. Maybe your job depends on it as well, and people want you to be gracious like that. So make sure that that's your automatic response, but it's okay. You can harbor the resentment in your heart. You know, there are days when I feel in the burdens of ministry that my flesh and the devil are talking to me and they say things like, Sam, you know, it's too much. Don't you, don't you realize that so-and-so is just against you in this place? Don't you know just trying to undermine you? Or don't you realize that so-and-so is not trustworthy? Don't you realize that you've been betrayed, Sam, in the past? by Christians, especially even Christian leaders that you trusted as well in the past, don't make that mistake again. Don't trust anybody. Don't give yourself fully over to the people. It's not worth it. You're just going to get hurt again. 
You know, in fact, when they come for you, Sam, you, you know what to do, right? Pull out your diary of the facts. You know things well. In fact, you know your scriptures probably better than most of them as well. You know church history probably better than they as well. And when they come for you, make sure you pull all these things out and you pound them. Fight them in the areas that they fight against you. And you're smart enough, Sam, to know how to handle it in such a way that looks God-honoring, but really it's about satisfying your own personal need for revenge. Or, or Sam, drop some hints about how hard you work, how much you suffer for the kingdom of God, so that people will think that you're great. The list goes on and on and on. That's a frightening thing for me to see the things that can come into my own soul, into my own heart. And I look at those things and I go, God, help me. That's wicked. That's evil. How can I, as an individual who ministers the gospel, I can't go down this road. God, don't let my flesh and the devil teach me that this is true and let me live this out. I may be able to pass in front of all sorts of people if I do this as well, but I will die in your eyes. What matters the most, it matters very little, as Paul says, that I am judged by other people. What matters is I'm judged by my God at the end of the day. And the Lord Jesus knows my heart, and he will not allow the secret things of the soul to go unjudged. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, brothers and sisters. We cannot take sin lightly outwardly, but we also must not take sin lightly on the inside. And are you willing to be vulnerable before God and to deal with these secret things of the soul that nobody else knows in the world and that you might be content to get by with, but God sees and it brings him displeasure? You may be misled into believing that you're on the narrow road when you're actually on the highway to hell if you don't deal with the inside. I run the real risk of being a whitewashed tomb. But the truth of the matter is the same goes for any one of you who are listening to this right now. Brothers and sisters, you may never have murdered anyone. But if you harbor anger in your heart, you're a killer. You may never have committed adultery on your spouse. But if you long after another person, you dream about what a life together is like with them, you fantasize about them in your heart, as well, and you know that you can't have them, you're an idolater. You've committed adultery in your own heart. And you can't hang on to that. You have to let it go. You have to bring that to God. It's allowing something else to occupy the throne of your life, and it colors everything that you do and you think. And Jesus says here, you must pass through the narrow of hypocrisy. You cannot live like that. You cannot be right on the outside and not right on the inside. Now, the solution here is not just, okay, well, Sam, application for your sermon. In order to make my outside and the inside equal, I'm just going to let my anger out. I'm going to go give it to somebody here. And that way, my outside and my inside are the same. I'm like, no, 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 you can't, can't do that, okay? That's not how you deal with it. Or, well, since I'm lusting after someone, I better go and tell that person right now what's actually going in my heart in order to make my inside and my outside. I'm like, no, no, that's not what you need to do either. Okay, bad idea. What you need to do is you need to go to God with the inner parts of your heart and to say, God, help me kill my sin. Turn my lust into genuine love for others and turn my anger and my hatred and my bitterness instead into genuine affection. Not anger, but affection. 
for that which is my brother in Christ, or even if it's my enemy, give me genuine affection for them. And when you've dealt with that, God, in my heart, then let my outward godly action as a result of that match what is inside of my heart, and that is pleasing to you. God, would you do this for me? Because I can't do this on my own. It's too hard, and I need your help. And I know, God, that you love me and that you will supply me because Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and he has promised never to leave me and to forsake me. Would you do this for me? Church, as we wrap this up, let me just say that the narrow way is the only way that leads to life. If you're not a Christian here, I just want to urge you to consider that if you're stumbling over the fact that Christianity seems so exclusive, don't. Just because it's exclusive doesn't make it wrong. Just because Jesus says he is the Son of God and that everybody else is wrong doesn't make it necessarily wrong. The question is, is that factually true? And if he really is the Son of God, then you do well to pay attention to what he has to say. Don't drown in this first narrow of exclusivity. Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins and to offer you a new life with him, to cleanse you and to make you whole and to give you hope that you have never had before in this life. Every religion in the world tells you, here's how to reach out to God. Only Christianity comes to you and says, you can't reach out to God. This is how God has reached out to you. Will you not grab his hand, confess of your sins and turn over to him? God has reached over to you. Religion offers you advice in this world and says, do this and you will live. Christianity is the only one that comes in and says, I offer you not advice, but I offer you news. Good news of what God has already done. You just need to believe it. And the question is uh, for you is, can you humble yourself? Lay down your ammunition, drop your own sense of righteousness that is nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God and say, God, I'm unclean. I need you. You are true alone. I have no hope before you. Take my sin, deal with it, and give me a righteousness that comes to Jesus Christ alone and help me to live different. For Christians who are listening to this today, let me ask you, you may have made it first through the first narrows of exclusivity and you believe that Jesus Christ is God. But are you drowning in the second narrows? And that is the second one of hypocrisy. In other words, your faith and your religion or for you, this is all an outward thing. And you have allowed weeds and wickedness to grow in your heart unchecked because nobody can see. But the truth of the matter is that God sees and God looks at you as his child and urges you to come to him for cleansing and forgiveness. And he promises that if you would confess your sins to him, he is faithful and just to not only forgive you your sins, but to cleanse you from all right unrighteousness and to purify you. If someone has deeply hurt you, can you not forgive them, knowing that God forgave you the far greater hurt of your crime against him, of rebellion against the king? If you're struggling with a relationship that you can't let go of, can you trust that Jesus, who loves you more than any human being could possibly love you, and he's proved this to you by dying for you on the cross, will be more satisfying to your soul than any other human being on the planet? Can you trust that even if your life turns out in such a way, you don't get the job that you want, it doesn't go the way that you're thinking, your business fails, all that kind of thing, can you trust, instead of being angry with God and railing at him that, God, you died on the cross for me. Although I'm struggling with money now and I'm feeling like I'm becoming poor, I know that Jesus died on the cross. He came to earth. He 
gave up his riches so that we by his poverty could become rich, helping not to wrestle with money and to worry about being poor because actually in Jesus Christ, I'm already far richer than I could ever have imagined. And my treasure is not here on this earth, but is in heaven. God, help me to fight these lies that are pervading my soul right now with truth that comes from your word and this gospel. Help me, God, to do this. And if you're willing to do that, God will deal with your soul. He will save you. He will help you. You know, the world says to people, I don't care about what you're like after work. All I care about is can you get the job done? God, on the other hand, says, actually, I don't care about your work. As if I need you to work for me. God says, I care about who you are, whether you're working or not. Completely the opposite. And Jesus says here, there are only two ways to live. There is my way, or there is the highway that leads to destruction. And which for you will it be? Do you hear the master calling you today to choose rightly? Will you sail through that narrow of exclusivity and then sail through the next one, the narrow of hypocrisy, and live in a way that honors the king? It's my hope, actually, that every time that you who live here in Vancouver drive across these bridges and you look out at them, that you will remember this. As you look at the Lion's Gate and you look at the Iron Workers Memorial and be reminded of just the imagery that I've used here today to talk about these two things. Sail through the narrows of this in your spiritual lives, not to get to Port Moody, but to get to somewhere far better. That is the heavenly city that is waiting for us, that is more glorious than anything else on this earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, God, for this text. And I know, Father, your word is always so rich and so full of insights and warnings to illumine us, illuminate us on the way forward. God, without your truth, we will be doomed to death and we will be tempted to hide our own sins and allow them to kill us from the inside out and not to deal with them. But God, you are a gracious God. So I thank you through Jesus that you have given us your kindness and your affection and your power and that your love, God, has melted our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. I pray, Father, that you would help us, God, melt our resistance to you whenever you call us. I pray, Father, that we would be a people, a zealous, oh God, to not live in outward sin and to live in a way that gives up even of our freedoms so as not to destroy others, but also not just that, but also to deal with the things that are on the inside of our hearts, to deal with what is inwardly wrong and displeasing to you and is hidden from men's sight. Father, help us not to stumble over these two narrows, but to walk the true, straight, and narrow way to enter through that narrow gate and walk into life. In Jesus' name I pray.